Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 1. Last week, oops, there we go, check, check. Last week we handled verses 6 through 10. I'm pretty sure I was here. Um, So this week we'll pick it up in verse 11. Before we read that, let's spend some time in prayer. Father, we come before you now, having um, spent time singing, spent time praying, um, spent time just saying good morning to one another and catching up, and now we're going to turn our whole focus to your word. So it would be pretty meaningless if this is just me talking for the next half hour. So we beg you, Father, that you send your spirit into our midst. Anoint me as I speak and anoint all of us to listen and learn of you. Help us to take warnings where there are warnings, to heed instruction where there's instruction. Most of all, we pray that you would show us Jesus in this text, as we always pray in his name. Amen. All right, Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 11, says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in In Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. (coughs) That sounded great. Um, Over the last two weeks, we've covered a significant amount of ground in Galatians, even though we've only covered 10 verses. Um, We talked in the introduction about the location or the geographical place, which was an S-shaped section of what is modern Turkey today. We saw the date, which was probably 54, 55 AD. And we saw the occasion that the Galatian churches were in grave danger. And I likened it to the impending eruption of a volcano They were bringing themselves into danger by forsaking real relationship with Christ for empty religious ceremony. And last week, I made the case that this was not primarily a doctrinal issue, but a relational one, and spent 35 minutes exploring this idea that if sin separates us from God, which it does, we know it does because All over in God's word, 
both in narrative sense and in an instructive sense, God describes the relationship between him and sinners in these terms. There is a separation between us. There are two reasons I gave that that separation exists. Reason number one is that God cannot comfortably be in the presence of sin because it is the antithesis of his very nature. And that doesn't mean anything to you if you're Natalie and you don't know what the word antithesis means. I don't know. Do you know what the word is? No. Okay, so let me explain it this way. This isn't just for you. This is also for Audrey. Not your sister, my daughter. But it might be for you too, Audrey. I don't know. Um, God made my wife and I different, thankfully. The, the result of one of the great differences that she and I have is that we made an agreement early on when children entered the picture. And the agreement works like this. If there is throw-up involved, I handle that. And if there's a number two involved, she handles that. So, and I'm not, not, you know, like number two's outside of the context where you want them. So I did plenty of diaper changes and wiping, but if there was an animal or a child that did one of these things in our house, the obligation was assigned accordingly because God made me where if I encounter a number two outside of its appropriate context, there's something in my DNA that has made my brain stop functioning <laughs> properly when I find it. I just can't, I don't know how to deal with it. I forget how cleaning works when I find things like that. So <clears throat> she handles that, but he made her in such a way, and I'm not trying to gross everybody out, but you want to understand antithesis, right? He made her in such a way that when she encounters even the smell of throw up, she immediately is on the verge of adding to the quantity of it that's in the space. So that's my department. Um, when, When we talk about antithesis, all right, I guess I do need one of those things. Let me move it up. We'll try that so I can look down. When we talk about antithesis, we're talking about the opposite of what I, what I am fundamentally. So you could say in one sense that number twos outside of where number twos belong are the antithesis of what I'm about. And throw up is the antithesis of what Lisa's about. So if you're a kid, you can just think in terms of uh, what really, really grosses you out. Thanks, Matt. And I might have already covered the thing that really, really grosses you out if you're, if you're like me. This isn't a huge distraction or anything, is it? It's a good thing I'm just talking about bodily functions at this point. Um, but if you think about what grosses you out as a kid, I mean, and I don't mean like, ew, I mean like, Wah! really grosses you out. That's the closest we can get to understanding what God feels, so to speak, when he's in the presence of sin. It doesn't just make him mad. It doesn't just make him sad. Sin is revolting to God's very nature. So it creates separation between him and those that that do it. That's the first reason. The second reason we saw 
that sin creates separation is that as sinners move in the rhythm of the pursuit of their own glory and just doing what they want to do, we're not moving along a, a, a lateral continuum. What we're always doing is progressing further from civilized behavior as we were designed into uncivilized, animalistic, um, insane behavior that we were not designed for. And I said the easiest way to illustrate this is look at a drug addict and how they progress away from what the rest of culture approves of into things that make us cover our mouths when we hear about it. And you've got a good illustration of sinners progressing in their sin. The reason that this creates separation is because as you progress in rhythms of sinful conduct, you don't want to be in the company of accountability. You don't want to be around somebody that's like, ew, that's gross. You want to be around people who approve of it and support you in it. Well, we know because God made us this way, we know that he hates sin and that, and that we even know what sin is without being told. We have this innate instinctive sense of what's wrong and what's right ingrained in our substance because he made us that way. And I can prove it. And the way that I like to prove it is with this story. When Sam was too young for me to treat him the way I'm going to describe that I treated him. So I think he was like maybe just had just turned two, which means Kate was six months old. One day evening, um, he bonked her in the head with a wooden block. And I don't know how many Newtons of force he engaged in doing that. Probably not very many because he was two. And it was probably like it bit way bigger in my head when I saw it than what actually happened. But the important thing is she cried. So I engaged and the way that I chose to engage with him after he bonked her in the head with a wooden block was to wrap him on the head with my knuckles and yell at him not to hit his sister with a wooden block. Right? This is biblical parenting (laughs) so far. And Sam reacted to that by, I mean, just bursting into tears, rubbing his noggin right here, and then just with more indignation than I thought a two-year-old was capable of coming up with, saying, Daddy, that hurt! And I could tell by looking at him that this was going to be substantive for me. Like a core memory got created in me and not one that Joy would be happy about, if that's all Inside Out references. It wasn't that he was in physical pain that was driving his emotive response. It was that in his worldview, the person who was bigger and stronger than him and responsible for protecting him had just inflicted discomfort and pain on him, and he felt that it was unjust. Where does a two-year-old get that sense? It's in our DNA. It's how God made us. So as we progress in patterns of sin, we want to get away from accountability because we know in our heart of hearts that what we're doing is wrong. 
So Paul describes it in Romans 1 as we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We put the truth away from us. So God removes himself in one sense from the presence of sin, and sinners remove themselves from the presence of God. That is how sin creates separation. So the point I tried to make last week was that if the gospel deals with sin, if the redemptive work of Jesus Christ deals with sin, it must be that the principal consequence of sin is dealt with in the gospel, which means Jesus, by redeeming us, brings us back into relationship with our Creator. That's the gospel indicative that I mainly focused on because what Paul says in verse 6 is that the Galatians are deserting a person, not a principle. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. Now, how were they doing it? Well, they were corrupting the gospel with man-made additions. And that must be equivalent to deserting Jesus Christ. Adding to the gospel empty religious ceremony must be equivalent to deserting the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. So let's look at verse 11. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So something not very many people know about me is that I actually played guitar on one of the more famous albums to come out of Nashville in the last 10 years. In fact, it may be that none of you know this about me. As MySpace was winding down in 2011 and Facebook was increasing in popularity, one of the things that MySpace had that Facebook didn't was a giant repository of singer-songwriters that posted little recordings of their music so that other people would find it and maybe a record label would find it. And I made it a habit to go on there and post you know, little things that I had written and see if anybody was interested in it or grab stuff that other people had written and, and make it better. So I stumbled across this young lady's page in probably 2012, maybe late 2011. And some of the stuff that she put up was like, the songs were actually pretty catchy. So I downloaded a couple of them and reworked them and put in like good guitar playing and some electric guitar. And it kind of had a country vibe to it. So I even threw in some dobro at no extra charge, but with her vocal line. And then I uploaded it to my page and I linked it to her and I just said, hey, um, feel free to use this if you like it. I just did it for fun. And that's how I roll. It was fun for me to do that. So as a result, if you pull up Casey Musgrave's first big hit album, which came out in 2013, it's titled Same Trailer, Different Park. And you listen to the song Merry Go Round or Back on the Map. That's actually me playing on, the, on those songs on that album. Now, if you find that hard to believe, it's because I made all that up. <laughs> None of that is true. It's a complete fabrication. 
unlike what Paul is trying to communicate in verses 11 and 12. That's called illustration by contrast. You're welcome. (laughs) I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, because I didn't get it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So I don't have this in my notes, but it just occurred to me it needs to be said. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. My gospel does not come from direct revelation from Jesus Christ, and neither does anybody else's who's genuinely saved. It comes from the word of God. But the apostolic office had the privilege of receiving from Jesus these words and then giving them to us that we might know the gospel. So Paul's conversion is pretty well known, but just in case you don't know it, flip in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. We'll just look at a couple of key verses. Acts 7, uh, right, at, right at the end, 57, I think, if I can find it. All right, so what's going on here is Stephen, the, the deacon in the early church, has just finished giving uh, a, a really good message and a stunning indictment of the Jews for their rejection of Jesus Christ, <clears throat> insinuating that, that rejecting God is what they had done all through history, that the people that made up the nation of Israel were, were guilty of exactly what they had done to Jesus Christ, but for forever. And they respond the way, you know, audiences sometimes do by covering their ears and uh, rushing him with a loud voice. But 57 says, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called, he called out, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The important part there is these people laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of his execution. And then a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. We'll skip over to um, chapter 9. And, and now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, which... Um, I know I've said hundreds of times, but I'm going to say it every time I read this. That should tell you that the, the gospel is not a moral system. It is not even a, a, something that you can study and make doctrinal PhDs out of. It is, it is transformative, and it's a way of life. It's not just something you know. So he was looking for those that belonged to the way, men or women, indiscriminate, he didn't care. He might bring them bound to Jerusalem and not for a spa day, right? As he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. 
The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your servants at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So I'll, I'll abbreviate. Ananias goes, lays hands on Paul, and the scales fall off his eyes, and he immediately starts proclaiming Jesus Christ. Paul's testimony is something that we'll get into more in the coming weeks, like his post-conversion testimony. The important thing is you understand he, he didn't make this experience up. This really happened to him. He really had a meeting with Jesus that changed him fundamentally. Right? We have to get that. We have to get it. If we don't get that, we're not going to get any of the rest of this. The beginning of Paul's gospel is nearly always his own personal testimony. Look at verse 13 back in Galatians 1. You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and violently tried to destroy it. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says this. He says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the word of God or the power of God unto salvation. And what, what Paul means in saying that is that when you're lost, everything about the gospel sounds ridiculous. It, it really does. Although, well, I'm, that'll be a giant bunny trail I, I don't have time to get on. I can, I can say this in truth. The gospel... Unedited, the, 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 the authentic, explicit, biblical gospel sounds like idiocy to people who don't believe it. So let's just roll through it real quick. There is a God that you cannot see that created everything. Everything that that God created was good. There was nothing evil or wrong with creation the way that God made it. He gave a commandment for the good of that creation, specifically for the good of the people that he created. They violated the commandment, they broke the law, and marred themselves, and that they separated themselves from God, and marred all of creation as a result of that transgression. Yet, God promised to redeem us. So, God exists, created everything that was good, gave a commandment for our good, we broke the commandment, and God's response was to promise to redeem us. This is nonsense. In fact, if we go into detail, 
really the promise worked like this. The Father and the Son covenanted together to redeem a people, which is equally ridiculous because now it's not one God. It's a pantheon of gods. There's more than one. No, no, it's one God in three persons. That's ridiculous. Okay. What happened as a result of this covenant is the Son, Jesus Christ, came into the stench and the filth of humanity. He became a human being, yet with his divine nature fully intact, just laying aside all of his glory. That's ridiculous. Okay. He lived in such a way that he positively impacted everybody that he met. Jesus never met a corpse that stayed that way. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He made the lame walk. He made the the dumb talk. He set the captives free from sin. And as, as humanity responded to that, the way that they did it was they killed him. We killed God. That's ridiculous. That's insanity. That's nonsense. Everything I've said so far is nonsense. It gets better. He rose again on the third day, victorious over sin and death for all of his people. Well, that's nonsense. He ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for all his people. So if you're a child of God, right now, Jesus is, in effect, praying for you to the Father. That's nonsense. All you have to do is believe in him and you will have eternal life and be cleansed of all your unrighteousness. That's it. Only believe. That is also nonsense because the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It makes no sense. It, it doesn't line up with logic or or even what humans would picture as the dignity that a deity should possess. But the reason that they think it's foolishness is because they don't have what we have yet. And if you think it's foolishness, it's because you don't have what we have yet. And what we have that you don't have is a former life. A former life. We have a personal experience of a changed life which results from meeting God through faith in Jesus Christ. So instead of foolishness and nonsense, to us, the word of the cross, the gospel, is the power of God. Look at verse 14, Galatians 1. This is Paul's former life. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. So in Paul's former life, he was a self-righteous religious hypocrite. And I want to talk about this and how it relates to the two chasms that I brought up in the last couple of weeks. I said on the path of obedience to Christ, on either side of that path is a ditch. One is the ditch of legalism and one is the ditch of licentiousness. So we're always at risk as Christians of wandering off the path of obedience into thinking it doesn't matter how I live, God will forgive me, and thus taking advantage of or sinning with the expectation of forgiveness. 
or alternately wandering into a path off the path into the chasm of legalism, which is it's Jesus plus my obedience that saves me. It's Jesus plus some outward religious ceremonial thing that saves me. Paul actually simultaneously is in both of these in his former life. Check this out. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Zealous for the traditions of my fathers could be reset this way. I was so enthusiastic about upholding the law of Moses. Okay? That's what he's saying. So he, he's so enthusiastic about the law of God that he violated the law of God to defend the law of God. That's what he's saying. I killed people to uphold the law which says, thou shalt not kill. That's what he's saying. And this is what self-righteous, legalistic people do. I care so much about the moral standards of God that I exempt myself from following it on occasion so that I can persecute people who don't follow it. Well, that's ridiculous. But again, you'll notice when you meet folks who are self-righteous, it's never what they are doing that's the issue. It's always what everybody else is doing that's the issue. The fact that nobody wants to be around them in their minds has nothing to do with their nasty, bitter, hateful, judgmental attitude. The reason that people don't want to be around them is because they're just doing godliness so well that nobody else can stand it. They're so spiritual, nobody wants to be around them. Did you see what Paul said? I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries because I was so much better at the law than they were. I was so enthusiastic about the law of God that nobody could keep up with me. But in the verse prior, he said, I persecuted the church and tried violently to destroy it. I think Paul's tongue is a little bit in his cheek here as he's writing this because he realizes it was ridiculous what I was doing. And in the same way, what we're doing when we wander off the path of obedience, either into license or legalism, what we're doing is ridiculous. <clears throat> Paul is exposing the hypocrisy of those who replace relationship with God with empty legalistic religion. If you're self-righteous, listen to me, please. Look right at me. <laughs> Let's make it easy on the self-righteous people. Everybody look right at me. <laughs> You're not friendless because of your moral superiority. You're friendless because you're alienating everyone around you with your harsh, judgmental spirit. That's a signal to you to check and see if you're self-righteous. Who are you better than? Nobody. And why doesn't anybody want to do life with you? Not because you're better than them. Why do you have a new group of friends every three or four years? Not because you're better than them. You probably have a personality disorder and you need to go to therapy. Verse 15. <laughs> I know from experience. Verse 15. <clears throat> 
When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. This, this is how Paul gained new life. Not through keeping the law and certainly not through breaking the law to defend the law. Through God's pleasure, according to God's plan, Paul met Jesus and boom former life. We have to have a former life. You've got to have a a point where that was then, that was me living according to my will for my purpose and my glory. And then God in mercy, according to his plan, introduced me to Jesus Christ. And then all that became my former life. So here's the question. Does the gospel that I preach sound like foolishness to you? Does the gospel that I preach just not have quite enough law in it for you? Does it sound like I made it up because I'm more interested in filling seats than I am in being honest? Is that how you feel about the gospel that I preach? I will contend, like I'm going to go harder in the paint and say, you're the one with the problem. You need to have a former life. Because the gospel that I preach, I didn't invent it. I told a story I invented a few minutes ago. I'm good at making stories up and I can make them sound convincing, but this isn't one of them. This is not my word. This is not man's word. So look at Romans 3 and with this we'll, we'll be done. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. All right, here's what it says. Romans 3, 21. Everybody there? Now the righteousness of God has been manifested. If you have the ESV, let's say these next four words together. All right, I'll start over, but we're going to read those last four words that I didn't read yet together. Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the law has a role, and we're going to get into that next week when we talk about the diagnostic. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look, all means you. Even though you're better at keeping the law than I am, even though you are outpacing me in law keeping, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. And, 24, are justified by his grace as a... Yeah. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does that mean? That means God is holy, 
can't be in the presence of sin and cannot just declare that sin is okay so that we could be back in communion with him. He has to be just and the justifier. That means somebody has to pay for sin. And that's what that word propitiation is kind of talking about. The wrath of God being dealt with by the blood of Christ. He is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? I'm keeping the law. Whoop-de-doo. It's excluded. It's not needed. Do you feel like you get cut at the knees when somebody preaches? that? Wait, what, it doesn't matter? No, it doesn't matter. Will you keep it if you're a Christian? Say amen. amen. Yeah, you'll keep it. But not because you're trying to be saved. You'll keep it because you are saved. Boasting's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. We hold that one is justified by faith. Let's read this together. Apart from the works of the law. Translation, you're not gaining God's approval without putting your faith entirely in the work of Jesus Christ and forsaking your own works. That's the gospel. And you're never going to believe it without God being pleased to reveal Jesus to you. So let's ask him to do that right now.